1: Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, May 9th, the Protecting Trans Kids edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to
0: Naima, who is
1: nine, and we live in Los Angeles.
0: I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's seven, and Teddy, who's five. And we live in Colorado Springs, Colorado.
2: I'm Zach Rosen. I host the Best Advice Show podcast. And I live in Detroit with my family. Noah is four and Ami is one.
1: Today on the show, we're talking about the wave of anti-trans legislation, the role of misinformation in this moment, and how to protect trans kids. We'll be joined by Jules Gil-Peterson. She's a trans historian and author of Histories of the Transgender Child and co-host of Slate's very own Outward Podcasts. She's wonderful and insightful. You'll definitely want to stick around. But before we get into that, we wanted to dive into our mailbag and share some of your thoughts. We had a lot of passionate fleas on Facebook and in our email in response to Elizabeth's Quandary about Oliver's track meet. Here's one of them.
3: Elizabeth, I implore you to let Oliver skip the track meets. I feel like America is uniquely obsessed with turning all fitness and sport into competition. I grew up thinking I hated sports because of that feeling that Zach described of teammates cheering you on and lifting you up. I hate that. It makes me feel anxious and self-conscious about my athleticism and whether I'm doing enough for my team or letting them down, etc., etc. It was only when I was in my 20s and had some distance from the tyranny of elementary school teams that I realized I don't hate sports at all. I just hate sports competitions. There are plenty of other contexts in which kids can learn to give a second try to things they struggle with for the first time. Please don't make this be it. Signed, not a team player in Toronto.
1: Oh, I love the America shade, by the way, Toronto. That was a fun surprise at the end. Like, oh, America just makes everything a contest. Am I right? Anyway, cheers from Canada. You're not wrong.
0: I was deeply moved by the many of you (laughs) who shared your stories about how terrible it is to be made to do something. And in fact, we actually, none of us went to the track meet on Monday because it was super cold and I didn't want to stay out there. But prior to that, I had already told Oliver he went happily to practice Tuesday and Thursday. And Thursday... Walking out, I had spoken to his coach. The coach said, I'll see you at the meet on Monday. And he screamed back, I'll be there, but I'm not running. You know, the coach looked at me and I said, yeah, he's going to come. He said he'd wear his team shirt. He's happy to cheer on everyone else. He's not interested in running. And she was lovely. She was like, great. And then when I messaged her because it was so cold and he didn't want to run. And then Teddy was like, it's so cold. And I was thinking, forget this. We're just not. It was cold. There were terrible, terrible winds. So we didn't go at all. There's practice today. Both kids Happy to come to practice again. You know, I said, "Okay, we have track practice today. They're both like, yes, we love practice. So we're just going to stick with that. We have another meet, our last meet on Monday. And both kids said they would go. And we're going to go wear our shirts, cheer them on if he decides to run at any point. He can if he doesn't want to run. Totally fine. I just noticed the weight that was lifted from him when I took away the idea of the meat altogether. So that's where we are. Thanks for all the advice. And again, sharing your your stories about how much you hated practice and didn't find till much later in life that you actually like sports. So we don't want to do that.
1: We love updates from hosts and updates from readers and we love feedback. So thank you so much for the feedback and good job, Elizabeth. I think that was a very fair decision that you made and that Oliver will feel a lot better knowing that this isn't something that he has to do.
0: Someone said, like, I just really wanted my parents to hear me. And I was like, oh, okay. well, like, my number one thing I'm trying to do is make the kids feel like I hear them. So I was very swayed by that. But I also tried to say, I, you know, I hear that this is something you really don't want to do. And that is fine.
2: I think team sports are only fun for people who are going to have fun at team sports. (laughs) It should should not be compulsory.
0: Yes, we don't all have to like team sports.
1: So we also had some good advice for our letter writer who had a sleep dilemma.
3: We have a 10, 6, and 5-year-old. Bedtime has really flexed around as the kids have grown up. But in general, the eldest is now going to bed around 8.30. The littles are typically between 6 and 7 p.m. Now that 6 is almost 7, he sometimes gets an extra 30 minutes it usually goes okay. Nominal arguments. The part of the routine that I like to think we did really well as parents, but in reality just stumbled into, is the morning. All three kids have those kid clocks that change colors at certain times. No one is allowed to leave their room until 7. They will wake up anywhere between 5.30 and 7, but they all know and magically adhere to stay in their rooms and read, draw, quietly play until those clocks change. Even the five-year-old who sees every other rule as merely an inconvenient suggestion. Looking forward to more episodes. DJ.
0: We tried those clocks, they didn't work. (laughs) They didn't work. I tried all those clock tricks for morning and they just didn't work. But I have friends who they work very well.
2: Amazing that it works for you, DJ.
0: Which goes back to, I think, our whole point of the sleep, which was that Listen, every family is different. You all have different constraints, and you should try a bunch of stuff and report back to us with what works, because it might work for someone else, and it might not, and that's okay.
1: Well, DJ, thank you so much for sharing what works for you. As I said, we love getting letters from listeners. We love to hear from you all. And if you have any thoughts, send us an email at slate.com. or you can also record a voice memo and email that too. Let's take another quick break. Please don't go anywhere. If you're new to our show, welcome. Whether you're a parent, educator, or just interested in this wild journey, we're so glad to have you. Here on Mom and Dad are Fighting, we share our parenting triumphs and fails, offer some advice, and share recommendations of things we love. We're here twice a week on Monday and Thursday, so subscribe to never miss an episode.
3: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound and we're back.
1: So if you're in the U.S., you've probably heard about the mounting attacks on trans youth across the country. States have banned participation in sports, their attempts to criminalize gender-affirming health care. Idaho's bill would make it a felony to provide medical care to trans youth. And in Texas, the governor ordered investigations into families who are providing their child with gender-affirming care, considering it child abuse. Though there was an injunction, Texas's attorney general suggested that they're going to keep investigating. All of this is being marketed or branded as protecting children, but in reality, it's making it much, much harder and more dangerous to be a transgender child or the parent of a transgender child in this country. So where does that leave parents? Well, to help give us some context and advice, we're lucky to be joined by Jules gill peterson She is a trans historian and author of Histories of the Transgender Child and host of Slate's very own Outward podcast. Welcome to the show, Jules.
4: Thanks for having me. Hate to be here for this reason, but happy to be here also.
1: Well, we're certainly glad to have you. We've been calling this a wave of anti-trans legislation, but is that the appropriate way for us to contextualize what's going on here?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's like, I guess, you know, waves can be relentless if there's a storm going on, right? You know, I've certainly used that word. Avalanche is the word. Not sure why it's always natural disaster metaphors, because these are squarely the product of uh, human action in this case. I mean, I think we might, you know, that you could look at this on many timescales, but I think maybe the most relevant thing for, you know, people who are sort of trying to adjust what's going on right now, is that over the last year, right, you know, last year, Uh, Right around this time of the year, you know, I was hopping on, talking everywhere I could about what at the time seemed like a big wave, well over a hundred pieces of legislation. And now here we are a year later and that we're on track to over double that. So there's been a quantitative shift and there's also been this kind of qualitative shift. I think people have really reacted to the, the intensification of rhetoric, really extremist language, also things that used to be just QAnon talking points, what a quaint time that was, but now are sort of being adopted by a rage of political actors. And, you know, this sort of real intensification in terms of policy, like the kinds of things that are being enacted right now are so severe, right? They are, you know, truly destroying quality of life and endangering people's lives. And of course, all of this happening in concert with, you know, restrictions, or the end of, you know, abortion rights, restrictions on voting rights, you know, the sort of, Uh, death spiral of public health in the pandemic so you know if all of that is a wave i feel like it's like it's the wave that's happening during the hurricane but maybe there is also an earthquake and there's maybe a forest fire volcano erupting
2: so much of this conversation around this issue is is around these legal and political arguments but help us like drill really down into like what will this legislation tangibly do how will it impact trans youth in our country
4: Thankfully, when it's sort of overwhelming to imagine like, well, how do you fight a battle on, you know, 50 or 100, 200 fronts? But we can actually kind of see a unified thread here for what all these policies add up to. And I would put it this way. They basically aim to disenfranchise trans people, push them entirely out of public life from as young an age as possible. Right. So it's not a coincidence that, you know, a lot of the bills, a lot of the legislation and policies target education, right? So kids lose access to equal education, either because you can no longer discuss that there are trans people or talk about trans people's genders maybe no genders at all in some in some classrooms right at the same time if you can't use the restroom if teachers cannot step in and deal with a bullying on campus or if teachers themselves are actually legally required to harass their students if you can't play on sports teams right you're you're essentially being kicked out of public school right for all intents and purposes and then you can't go to the doctor right getting any sort of gender affirming care is either going to be illegal or potentially criminalized and really dangerous even if your, you know, family or loved ones would be willing to seek that out of state. Right. And so, you know, you could think about what that does in the aggregate, right? It basically it deprives trans youth of the possibility of accessing the basic rudiments of life. Can't have education, can't have healthcare. Well, where are you going to end up if you make it all the way through high school, right? Getting into college is that much harder. And if your state now doesn't let you change important ID documents, well, good luck getting employment to begin with, right? And you have to totally privatize the cost of things like healthcare if you can you know, survive your childhood uh, in order to try and access them as an adult. So it's really this sort of systematic attempt, not so much to discriminate symbolically, against trans people starting in childhood but actually to deprive them of the means to live any kind of life but just like a basic okay life right and so I I really think you know those are really horrible things to take away from any kids and it's it's so telling to me right that when we put it that way it actually has like very little to do with like, what is gender? You know, what does it mean to be trans? Like, these are just like straightforward attacks on people's material chances at a life. And so they really do, I think part of the way to understand them, right, is it's full, fully encompassing every, every single dimension of your life, right? So you cannot be trans in public. You cannot participate in the formal labor economy. You cannot go to school. You cannot go to the doctor. I mean, what is left? So it pushes trans people, including trans youth or trans people beginning in their youth into the shadows, right, outside of, the public sphere into underground spaces or the margins where, of course, many trans people have long had to live. But now it's saying that will be state policy. Everyone's going to be pushed in that direction, right? Um, So it's really much more extreme than anything we've ever seen before.
0: It seems really purposeful targeting the youth, you know, like here, let's take an already kind of marginalize like this very tough time in your life and make sure that you can't do this or be the person you are, you know, like it, it seems so purposeful. We got a question from one of our listeners wanting to know about the role of misinformation and specifically kind of misinformation about what it means to have a kid who wants to transition. So we were wondering if you could speak to that and talk about like what you wish more people understood.
4: So I think a lot of people have this, they know that they're being fed misinformation, right? But most people, this is, unless you have trans people in your life, right? This might be the first time where you're sort of encountering the idea of trans youth in particular, right? Encountering it kind of every day all of a sudden, right? But like, what kind of information would you have to contextualize what that means? And of course, you know, a lot of the, you know, even mainstream articles that are written about trans people and trans youth are done from really disparaging, really biased perspectives to begin with. But one of the things I've done some research on is actually the kind of what I might call like the media ecology, the sort of steps through which we could watch in real time over the last couple of years, ideas that like truly are literal conspiracy theories peddled again by QAnon folks, also by white supremacists uh, and other kinds of really, really far right wing actors um, around the world. And you can kind of track in real time how they've migrated, right? Or the term I sometimes use is that they've been laundered by more legitimate media outlets, especially by the kind of like, um, you know, the quote-unquote, the, quote the just-asking-questions pundits, the kind of supposedly centrist journalists who make a career out playing of... playing com-
2: devil's advocate here, Jules. They're just,
4: well, they just hate <laughs> cancel culture, that's all, right? And, and, you know, it's weird, the only people, yeah, so some people can be canceled, some people can't, right? But these pundits have really made kind of a career, and some of them are trying to monetize their sort of you know cool anti-woke you know policy of questioning the existence of a group of children right but they have actually really made respectable ideas that come from the far right come from the proud boys right like these are people who we saw a big pivot after the 2020 election when there was a sort of realignment right like the actual Q, whoever that was disappeared you know like a lot of folks needed to find a new sort of political realignment and the evangelical right and the republican party have sort of embraced some of these folks and so It's that literal language, right? What happened in Texas, Right, with the state attorney general's office interpreting child abuse statute to cover gender affirmation. That child abuse language, right? Same thing with this groomer language, all of these sorts of made up fantasies about what it means to transition or just take care of a trans child. Those are QAnon talking points, right? And they participate and, you know, share space with like right wing um, and also white supremacist talking points about the idea of like having to secure, legally secure and like, you you know, white people's reproduction like it's like not fun bedfellows but they are real bedfellows so that language now is showing up in bills right it's showing up and being codified under the law it's being adopted as political rhetoric but you know if you didn't know the origin of it right you might still find it inflammatory or distrust it but just to know right where this came from i think is really powerful and you know it's tricky because some a lot of the disinformation that circulates around trans kids and this gets to the other part of the question you know, it's easily falsifiable, right? Some of it is completely made up, right? So if you ask the governor of Texas or maybe of Florida, the biggest issue about, you know, trans health care for young people is it's completely experimental and there's no research about it. Well, that's completely untrue, right? But they'll trot out these really inflammatory ideas, sterilizing children. Right. Well, there is no sterilizing of children going on or surgeries performed on young children. Well, there's no surgeries performed on young children, right? All of these things are really easy to disprove if you have the time to navigate, you know, this whole field of medical research and scientific research. And like, you know, I don't think that's, that's not a very good bar, right? And so, so here's what, here's my bottom line, right? Like, I don't actually think people need to become experts in, you know, gender, right? Gender theory, or, you know, the history of endocrinology, leave that to weird nerds like me, right? Like, you know, it's interesting, it's fascinating, but here's the real bottom line. The dividing line is very simple. It's, do you think there's anything wrong with being trans? If the answer is no, the rest doesn't matter, (laughs) right? Because all of these policies explicitly have the goal of reducing the amount of trans people in the world by targeting the most vulnerable ones, children, and on all sorts of whatever their moral or political belief is, they want to reduce or eradicate trans people from the face of the earth. And that is not a legitimate policy goal, right? And so once we accept that, then it's like, yeah, the rest is left up to other people, right? When you go to your doctor, you have to negotiate with your doctor on your healthcare, right? It's like, you know, kids actually have very little autonomy and very little access to healthcare right now. They are totally dependent on their parents. Like they weren't in a good situation. So all of these sorts of ridiculous lies that were essentially being sold are easy to debunk. But I actually think it's more important to point out that they're, you know, extremist in origin. And then to say, it's not a legitimate policy goal for the state to attempt to reduce eradicate a minority population from the planet. That's very disturbing state power. And I don't think most people want the government to have that kind of power because it's used against lots of other kinds of people too. So so I know that's sort of a, a long way around it, but I think that it really matters because I know a lot of folks, right? It's like, one, you don't want to dig into this nasty, like, disinformation. It's going to rot your brain. It's going to, you know, keep you up at night. It's going to make you cry. <laughs> like, it's really vicious stuff. But also, we don't need to spend all of our time trying to disprove it because the people who peddle it don't necessarily believe in it anyways. They're playing a very calculated political game. And it's okay for us to simply stand up and say, like, yeah, I don't think a trans childhood is a bad outcome. And that's it. You know, the rest is up to the people involved. Right. Not people who have just learned about trans kids six months ago because of an alliance defending freedom memo landed on their desk with, you know, an opportunity to fund their reelection campaign.
1: Speaking of those calculated political moves, why do you think there's been so much legislative success with bills targeting trans youth? Why is it easy to get so many people riled up to attack a population with whom they've had, like you said, probably little to no contact
4: yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> the quintessential American question, right? Like, why is targeting this tiny disenfranchised minority so popular, right? But but actually, there are several real answers that are important. You know, one of them would be that, I mean, we're watching in real time, you know, this sort of potential sudden overturning of Roe versus Wade. And now that single issue around which right-wing politicking has been organized for several decades is ostensibly going to have shifted. And clearly we're watching real-time auditions for, you know, new kinds of rallying cries, but they're not really that new at the same time, right? It's like, you know, I I think, you know, we have to see the kind of um, moral panic-driven politics here. They're all intimately tied together. So the, you know, just... Utter contempt for American history and the entire dismissal, you know, of anti-blackness and white supremacy, you know, as things that need to be taught in schools. Right? Are obviously tied. These so-called critical race theory bills are often the same ones covering LGBT curriculum in the classroom, right? But I, I think on a on, on a sort of broader level, there are two things I would point out that I'd like to see folks maybe reflect on because this kind of goes to like how we're all implicated. And one is. A lot of eggs were put in the basket of same-sex marriage uh, for a long time. And people might remember this, that in the 2000s, you know, trans activists were like, hey, hey, you know, the right to marry doesn't really like protect you in almost every other zone of life. So it's like not an incredibly inclusive kind of civil right. And trans people, you know, were like, we don't, that's not what we're like most needing right now. And, you know, a lot of national LGBT organizations said, wait your turn. We'll do you next, and then didn't uh, after, after you know, same-sex marriage was legalized. But part of what happened is that I think we've been outmaneuvered and caught off guard because in fact, you know, marriage rights don't cover healthcare, you know, except in limited ways, don't really cover employment or education. They're not relevant to children. Right. So, unfortunately, I think there was some residual energy left over after the legalization of same sex marriage that was easily transferred over to a new target, trans people. Right. Although, you know, who knows? Who knows how long same sex marriage, you know, rights have anyway. So, it's like this kind of constitutive vulnerability. And then the other thing I would say is just again, kind of exploitation of people being generally unfamiliar with trans kids. Right. Again, most people have not yet met real life trans kids and they're meeting the idea of them on TV or in movies or online or in the news. And that's fine, but that creates a real vulnerability, right? If you don't actually know this population, right? Then I think, you know, people, who are sort of behind these policies and campaigns have calculated, oh, we have a real opportunity. Let's get ahead of it and shape this issue in a totally inflammatory, hateful way from day one. And then it's already been framed. And it's so hard to get out of that framing, to unframe it, right? And, you know, children don't have lobbying groups, right? Kids can't vote. They can't vote out state legislators or governors who are trying to take away their rights. They have no legal power. They're at the mercy of adults, right? And so it is unfortunately built in to the legal and political infrastructure of the country to go after children. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, if we look at sort of the history of many different political movements in the US, children are actually often targets of political violence in the United States, but they're usually children that, you know, are not understood to be valuable. They're usually black and brown children, disabled children, and LGBT children. I mean, these are not new, you know, in that sense, you know, this situation isn't necessarily new, the kind of format is new, right? But I think the best example for me is what happened in Texas, right, where we saw the the state weaponize the idea of child protection laws and mandated reporting to use it, you know, to investigate the families of trans kids, you know, and as horrific of of a sort of twist as that is on mandated reporting or child protection, we have to be real that the child welfare system and the investigation of families at states like Texas has long been wielded explicitly as a weapon against black families and and families with people with disabilities this is not actually a radical shift in the application of those laws and procedures it's merely a new target so you know some difficult kind of reckoning moments there right because it's like well what's happening right now is really extreme but unfortunately like when we really take it in context we have to actually broaden our understanding of how sort of damaging these central state institutions of power have long been and how tolerant so many people in this country have been of attacks, especially on black, brown, and disabled kids. And I think that's, you know, again, to my mind, that's not actually a distraction from this conversation. It kind of gets us right to the heart of the problem.
2: Since kids are inherently disempowered politically and legislatively, what do you think us adults can do to advocate for trans kids and other LGBTQ youth?
4: Yeah, you know, I really think this is a moment where, hey, you know, us adults create the world that we throw children into and then mistreat them, you know, in and and actually often blame them for the things that we created. So this really is a moment for adults. We have to step up here. Right. And I think, you know, again, I'll come back to that point. I don't think you to make trans kids your issue right? You don't have to become well-versed in, you know, all of the different glossaries and, you know, of, of identities, and you don't have to, like, you know, know that much about trans people trans lives. I think you could just ask yourself some basic questions, like, you know, how do I want people to be treated in the world? On what basis do I think people deserve access to things like education and healthcare? And think about the broadest maybe coalition here of combined interests, right? So again, I think it's like, in one breath, Let's defend trans kids and let's, you know, try and not just, you know, stop and, uh, you know, pull back these legislative or policy changes. Right. But actually think about like, okay, even if everything was withdrawn tomorrow, we would be back to the status quo and the status quo itself was devastating. For trans youth because right you know it's awful to take away kids health care but i can guarantee you it's the tiniest sliver of trans kids who are even going to the doctor in the first place most trans kids in this country don't have loving supportive families to count on their families actually are often unsafe and you know most trans kids are not even being recognized as trans their gender is being you know used as a pretext to mistreat them through other kinds of systems like the school to prison pipeline or other state you know apparatuses that are already harming them you know for other reasons that have much more to do with race and class so like let's think about sort of what's a broad-based set of demands about like what kind of life we want children to be able to navigate and like kind of craft for themselves and what does it mean to take young people seriously to value their lives not because we want them to reflect who we think we are not because we think that children are our vanity projects or that they belong to us what would it really mean to sit with some of what is challenging about trans kids i mean what is amazing about trans kids right is they they come into the world i say this as an adult right who did not you know who's someone who transitioned as an adult, part of what inspires me about trans youth is they will like, they not only figure out something that for many of us, it takes us like a long time to figure out, they're willing to go to the adults in their life and say, hey, you were wrong about something pretty basic in the way you've been treating me my whole life. That is a monumentally powerful thing to be capable of doing, right? And I just think that deserves so much respect, right there, right? To to have that kind of articulateness, to have that kind of self-introspection, self introspection, self self reflection. I mean, it really means something. And so, I think you know. Part of that could make adults uncomfortable, it gives us anxiety, but then when you really think about it, like, well, you know, do you want to support children having the shot having a shot at a good life and being free from forms of policing and state violence? I mean, you know, then the answer usually I hope would be yes, regardless of who that child is, right? And so I think part of what it means is like. Let's not exceptionalize trans kids as if they actually are a problem to begin with. Let's think about what it would mean to really want there to be trans kids in the world to see trans childhood not as a tragic but acceptable or tolerable state of life, but one that we would welcome. And to think about the value of young people as being inherent, not in spite of things that, uh, you know, are... For which there are kind of social opprobriums or lots of you know bias out there like but actually like want children to be themselves like actually then what kind of world do you have to build for them to do that i think those that's the two two questions for me and i think you know we already know the answers to those things right in that sense there's no there's no learning curve for me there for building a world right that's safe for trans kids in texas well it's not just one again where we go back to trans being trans being taken off the list of investigatable, you know, concerns. It's like, uh, let's dismantle this whole, you know, awful system that polices, you know, communities that the state doesn't like by targeting their children for removal in the first place. Let's give healthcare to all young people who need it. Let's give healthcare to everyone who needs it, right? Like these are sort of broad based coalition questions. And so I think I really encourage people to, to think of championing trans youth because we know all young people deserve these things, right? And to not make that that our sense of... Let's not tie citizenship to a belief of deservingness, right? Because that's just going to always be used to disqualify some population. So I think the challenge of the moment obviously is in the face of, you know, the the wave, right? To not feel like our only job is to push it back to where we were, but to actually think like, well, if the if the scale of of things weighing down on us is so big right now, what's a scale of demand that's affirmative and equally as large? What's a world in which, you know, trans kids, if there's a world in which poor trans kids, um, you know, undocumented trans kids and trans kids of color are thriving, that's actually going to be a built world in which everyone is already thriving because those kids are already been pushed to uh, way out to the barge. And so if we're taking care of them, we're actually, you know, articulating a vision of caring for everyone. And I think that's just ultimately the win-win way to think of this. Let's just, let's, it's not even just win-win. It's like, Win, 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 win. Let's tack on all the wins we can, you know? And let's think about lifting up those at the margins because that lifts up everyone else.
0: Yeah, we know that the more diverse any setting is the better it is for everyone so why wouldn't why wouldn't we want that for everyone yeah well thank you so much for joining us jules we really appreciate you
1: listeners be sure to check out her book histories of the transgender child and check her out every month on slate's outward podcast
4: we try to bring you the best of all the gay things and there are so many so you know it's my pleasure so thanks for having me as well
1: Okay, it is finally time for some recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you have for us?
0: I am recommending, <laughs> it seems so mundane, but I have found like the best erasable pens. I don't know if you. <laughs> You, like, erasable pens from my youth were, like, awful, and the, the eraser never really got it off, and they, would, they were, like, watery. Henry's teacher has been using these and told him he has a really hard time with the pencil with some of his fine motor skill issues, and so a pen is so much better, and, of course, they need to use a pencil. He suggested these erasable pens that he used, and they are Pilot Friction Clicker Erasable Refillable and Retractable Gel Ink Pens. They cleanly erase, they come in all the different colors. I know this seems so dumb, but it is a game changer. I've been using them on my calendar book, and it's amazing. It's like writing in pencil, but with none of the, you know, how pencils like leave that, the gritty behind, and they smudge. This doesn't do any of that, and it erases totally cleanly with the back of the pen. It's great. So erasable pens for everyone.
1: Nice. Zach, what about you?
2: I am going to recommend a tweet that I read today. I should provide a trigger warning for those who might be upset by the description of this doctor describing uh, his role in having to carry out a pregnancy in a state where abortion wasn't accessible for a particular patient. So it's a tweet by Dr. Jorge A. Caballero, and I'll just read the first part and we can link to the rest because it's a long thread, but he wrote... The only time I've cried in front of a patient, a 20-something woman whose baby had multiple lethal malformations was forced to carry the pregnancy to term. Lacking access to prenatal care, she didn't know about the malformations until it was too late to have an abortion. And then he goes on to, to very viscerally and precisely describe what that experience was like. It just gave me a sense of like what's really at stake here as someone who personally has not had an abortion or been present for one. And so it's a difficult thread to read but i think profoundly important if you want to really step into just how deep this thing has the potential to go
1: very good thank you for sharing that zach my recommendation this week is the new york times spelling bee game i somehow got myself hooked on it it started with wordle went on a date with a guy it was one and done uh, we had no chemistry but he hit me to wordle and so I've been playing that ever since. And then I was telling another guy about Wordle. And then he was like, okay, cool. And he was like, yeah, I've got this many words. And I was like, wait, what are you playing? And it turned out he was playing Spelling Bee. And so now we both have New York Times Spelling Bee. I mean, New York Times Games memberships for $4.99 a month. But Spelling Bee gives you seven letters per day. And you can make as many words out of those letters as you can. I was the Queen Bee on yesterday. I got... 31 words very proud of myself today's challenge there's 51 words I got all 31 words I should say that were possible today 51 words are possible I'm at 30 so we'll see but it's a lot of fun and it's a fun gratifying game I give myself a little time to play it in the morning before I get started and a couple of breaks throughout the day big fun big fun all right. Well, that's it for our show. We'll be back in your feeds on Thursday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. And if you rely on this show for parenting advice, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's the best way to support us. Members will never hear another ad on any other Slate podcast. To sign up now, go to slate.com/momanddadplus. Again, that's slate.com/momanddadplus. This episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Jasmine Ellis. For Elizabeth Newcamp and Zach Rosen, I'm Jamila Lemieux.
0: Thank you for listening.